Subscribe to The Spectator in our flash sale and you'll get 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but we'll also send you a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Scotch Whiskey absolutely free. Hurry though, as this offer ends on Monday. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be welcoming Paul Muldoon, who is often and rightly described as one of the most significant living poets in the English language. And his new book is called Howdy Skelp. Paul, welcome. Thank you so Uh, much. I'm delighted to be here. Now, one of the pleasures of having a poet on is we can ask them to read. So I wonder, would you be able to read us a poem from Howdy Skelp to kick us off? I'd be delighted to. Thank you so much. This is one called Bramley's, not Grenadier's. Both of these are types of apple, as I'm sure you realise. Where I was brought up in County Armagh, North Armagh, the Bramley is very much to the fore. In fact, there is such a thing as an Armagh Bramley, which has its own, <laughs> which is no one else is allowed to sell. It has its own terroir, as it, as it were. So this is a poem that uses, I suppose, on some aspects of the difficulties, let's call them, that we've experienced in Ireland in recent years. Bramley's, not Grenadier's. The apple trees are put up against a wall and shot at dawn. The bodies lie where they fall. These are Arma Bramley's, not Grenadier's, given their russet tinge. That's blood coming out of an ear. At the heart of the espalier is the stake to which the branches are bound with pantyhose to allow for a little give and take. The apple trees are put up against a wall almost as often as in Gaelic football, Mahari is bested by the boys of Mullabon. These are Arma Bramley's, not grenadiers, for whom the thought of pruning shears will cause a twinge. At the heart of the espalier is the stake about which grenadiers are known to bellyache. That's blood coming out of a nose, the apple trees put up against a wall and shot at dawn are Arma Bramley's, not grenadiers, given their russet tinge. At the heart of the espalier is the stake to which the branches are bound with pantyhose. Thank you. Now, howdy skelp. For our non-Irish readers, what does howdy skelp mean? Well, actually, one of the delightful aspects of life, particularly in Northern Ireland, is our connection to Scotland. And indeed... um, there was a period in, the, in and around the six, seven hundreds when there was a single territory, a single kingdom known as Del Riada, which comprised the northeastern part of uh, what is now Northern Ireland and the southwestern part of what is now Scotland. It was a single kingdom where the sea facilitated travel rather than discouraged it. Actually, I imagine it's a kingdom that might well have a future, given what it sails us. 
But in many cases, the word Scotus, as you know, actually means Irish, as in Dunn Scotus. So we're very, very connected. And we're connected <clears throat> in more recent times also, of course, by the great waves of settlers from Scotland, many of them Presbyterians who came into Northern Ireland and who have enlivened the local dialect. So the word howdy is a word for a midwife and uh, a skelp is a word with which we're somewhat more familiar in Northern Ireland. A skelp was something you got if you misbehaved, you got a slap a skelp and a howdy skelp, a phrase I first came across in Robert Burns, is the technical term for the slap in the face or perhaps bottom that a baby gets as it comes into the world. Just to just to give it a little, what would one say, a little push in the right direction to check that all its vital signs are functioning. And it's usually followed, I suppose, by, you know, that first cry that we express as we arrive in this peculiar milieu. So that's what the term is. So it's a phrase that occurs in various guises through the book, um, here and there, you know, literally sometimes with a baby being, you know, woken up, as it were, spurred into action. But also, I think, at times, metaphorically, in terms of a wake-up call on a number of fronts, be it, you know, climate front, less to the fore in this particular book, but certainly more to the fore in my mind and in some other work that I've written but has not yet been published. I suppose a you know, wake-up call on um, social justice, racial justice. So various ideas like that are knocking around the phrase, howdy scalp. But it's a, a title, you know, there's so many, it's so hard to find a decent title for a book. This is one that falls into the category, I suppose, of howdy scalp, what on earth does that mean? Maybe let's find out, I suppose, is the impulse that lies behind it, you know? Yeah. I mean, as you say, though, it threads through the collection a little. Do you see your collections as sort of a grab bag of disparate poems, or do you see them as a kind of, you know, more architected thing, if that's the word? No, I think it's a very good word, but I think it's a bit of both. You know, the word poetry, as you know, it refers to construction, making something, and making something by design. So it would fall into the notion of architecture for sure. But it's not the main impulse behind, for me anyway, behind writing poems. My poems are written out of a sense of really having absolutely no idea of what I'm doing. And if ever... I'm just giving myself over to where the poems might take me. The idea of architecture comes into play, I suppose, as one amasses a few poems. And you can see that just as the poem is constructed, so the book is constructed and has its architecture, I suppose. So in this case, I try to keep the mind out as much as possible and try to go for the heart. But after a point, one does, partly because one's appealing to one's unconscious and one's subconscious, one does, of course, see patterns develop. And I suppose there comes a point in putting together a book where you think, ah, yeah, you know what, that actually might go with that. And another rather fascinating aspect of bookmaking, if I may call it that, is that you know sometimes you can see a gap between a couple of poems that might somehow ask for 
closing, as it were, and actually sort of sometimes a poem announces itself as a way of filling a gap. I know that sounds a bit weird, but, you know, perhaps that's in some sense what all poems do. They come into being as items that we didn't think we needed, right? Until, <laughs> until we didn't realize there was a hole until it's closed, as it were. Anyway, none of these analogies or metaphors really stands up particularly well. But putting together a book is a, is a, a mysterious business. It's almost as mysterious as putting together a poem. Do you kind of give those little assonances and echoes that you find, do you sort of give them a nudge when you're revising? Because, I mean, you use a lot of, you know, refrains and, I mean, sometimes as a matter of course, you're writing a, a villanelle or something a bit like it, but we'll see lines or phrases or words kind of reappearing. Do you find yourself sort of shuffling the furniture about to give a poem that coherence while you're writing it? <laughs> One of the verse forms that I had kind of discovered, I hadn't really been conscious of it much, uh, well, actually not at all, or if I had been, I'd forgotten about it, is the Trialet. That poem I just read about the Bramleys and the Grenadiers is made up of a series of Trialets, one piled on top of the other. It's a very particular form of repetition. It's usually just five lines, I believe it's five and when I discovered the trialet, I sort of went to town on it. And there are a number of poems in this book that use it as a method. And I mean, so much so that I'll probably never quite likely, well, I was about to say never use it again. The truth of the matter is that I'm less a user of forms than someone who is used by them. And I know that sounds a bit weird, a bit crazy, maybe even, but it's just the way it is. I am certainly more open to being used by these traditional received stanzaic patterns and uh, formal shapes than perhaps many other people. I mean, most people nowadays, I suppose it's fair to say, don't use rhyme, for example, which I tend to most of the time. It's not that I have any particular brief for it, not even any interest in it necessarily. I know it's weird, but I do know that <laughs> there are those who say, look, you know, the using rhyme surely to heavens went out about a hundred years ago. Aren't you aren't you a little behind the times? And, and I kind of understand, I do understand that. On the other hand, I've still sort of exercised by them, and they seem to exercise themselves on me. And maybe I should just get up and say, you know what, I'm not doing any more of that. But I'm not sure if I have the right to do that, quite frankly. You know, I'm one of these people who continues to fall into the pattern of believing in, in what used to be called inspiration. You know, I'm, I'm now 70 and it's probably too late for me to change my tune, though I do, of course, every so often I think, you know, maybe, maybe from now on I'll just write free verse. Let me make an effort to do that. And maybe I will. Who knows? It's all an adventure. But that idea of being sort of, well, starting out from a position of not knowing and then being used by the form or used by the muse as, you know, back in the days, the alien harp, they'd have thought of it. Is yeah. that why there's so much in your work that turns on, on puns? I mean, that sense of sort of discovering that there's this connection that you haven't created between two meanings of a word and just letting that take you somewhere. 
there are a few puns, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, I'm very conscious of that notion of the pun being the, <laughs> the lowest form of wit. That certainly is a way in which it's perceived. I mean, I think, you know, there are certainly a few elements of, of wordplay like that, but comparatively few, I would say. You know, the pun is a device, let's say, that has huge currency in our day-to-day -day life. You know, punning is something that if you're a, a, a work in a newspaper, many, many newspapers, including some quite high-end ones, the copy editors or whatever, the people who are putting uh, the titles... The subheads? Headlines? The subheads, yeah. Now, if you're a subhead and you don't have any access to the pun, you're probably in a bit of trouble <laughs> in many newspapers, many popular newspapers, and an indicator, actually, of what a popular form it is. People love the pun. Kids love puns. I'm always, when I sometimes lose faith in the idea, I'm reminded of my fellow countryman, the greatest punster of all time, one James Joyce. But I'm also reminded of that very substantial character in the history of the world by the name of Jesus Christ, you know, who was given to the pun. And for example, when he said, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, he was punning there, as you know, on the word Peter. And, you know, at times when I sort of wonder about the appropriateness of it, I think, well, you know, if Jesus Christ thought it was okay to pun, who am I to argue? <laughs> That's a reasonable position to take. You, you said, you know, your countryman, James Joyce, you talked about very much we as Irish poets. But... You know, you're an Irish poet who's been in the States for something like three decades, I think. I mean, one of the received narratives about Seamus Heaney, who I believe was one of your friends, is that he sort of had to go to the States in order to see Ireland clearly. Do you have that same thing? I mean, do you feel like sort of exile sharpens the vision of home? Now, I'm torn over that. I mean, first of all, I'm not absolutely certain. I don't know, but I'm not certain if it is indeed the case that Seamus Heaney had to leave home to see it clearly. I think, in a way, I mean, Seamus Heaney's poetry is a poetry of, one would almost say, total immersion. And he's in there, he's in the, he's in the bog, basically, and writing out of the bog. And I've always been sceptical about, on one hand, about the idea that distance lends perspective. I don't quite know if that actually squares up literally or metaphorically i'm not sure if standing half a mile away from the action gives one a better sense of it i really don't know if it does i mean perhaps in some contexts i mean maybe if you're half a mile away from the action of a battle you can see how things are going i honestly couldn't tell you but i'm not sure at all if being out of the fray as it were does give one a, a sense of things the other side of that, I suppose, is that someone like Joyce, the aforementioned, from Trieste or wherever it was, was absolutely fascinated by and completely obsessed, indeed, by the details, the, the specificities of a place. So that, you know, he famously wrote to his brother Stanislaus, inquiring about whether or not a physically fit person could jump down over the railings at 7 Eccles Street, where Leopold Bloom lives, whether they could jump over the railings and fall into the area down below, whether that was feasible. 
So, you know, I mean, distance makes it more engaged perhaps and in writing about the specificities of the place, but he does have to go back to the place or at least to, have to a witness to, to have those specificities validated as it were, you know? Now, I honestly don't know, I really can't tell you. I mean, when I lived in Ireland, which I did pretty much for the first 35 years of my life, I used to write a lot about the US. I was fascinated by US culture. And of course, I, I, I came to it through literature, through films, of course, also. I had a very particular sense of it. And funnily enough, I mean, nowadays, I, I write a poem about set in America on one day, and the next day I write a poem set in Ireland. I'm in a situation where I do both things. You know, that's, that's quite natural for me now. I don't, it's just the way I am, it's the way I live. Yeah. One of the poems in the book, quite early on in the book, American Standard, looks a bit like a kind of I don't know, riff on the wasteland, maybe? A little bit of a riff, I think one would say. I mean, certainly Elliot and Pound appear in it as characters, and there are a few lines in it that are <laughs> rescued from Pound's either blue or red pencil. I'm not quite sure which. There are a couple of lines... Uh, that he cut from the Wasteland, which I've installed here. I'm a big fan of Eliot, I have to say. I mean, the Wasteland was one of the first poems I read. Eliot was really my main man, as it were, when I was a teenager starting out. It's true that there are, uh, there are a few allusions to it, that's right, but it's a poem that was really written as a journalistic experience primarily. I suppose, I think I wrote it in the fall or the autumn of 2018, it must have been. I think it must have been then. Just it reflects on, on various aspects of, you know, American life and life beyond the so-called, you know, the refugee crisis, so-called, the horrible treatment of immigrants along the southern border of the U.S., aspects of day-to-day -day American life like that. So, it's a poem that's essentially journalistic, as indeed are a couple of the other poems in the book. I'm someone who is fascinated by trying different things. And, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes at the time one feels, well, this is working okay. Of course, you know, a year later, that may not be the case, but, you know, one does one's best. And I'm very interested in a poetry that, trying to write poems that, will include as much as possible of the world, you know? I mean, it's not that I get up in the morning and say to myself, okay, Paul, let's include as much as possible of the world, but it's what I find myself doing. Yeah, that idea of a journalistic poem, I mean, how does, or how do you feel like you can negotiate with current events and politics in verse? Because, I mean, there's generally a sort of, I don't know, probably a widespread sense that poetry is something that stands... To one side of politics, it, it looks further forward and further back. It doesn't write to the moment. I mean, there are counterexamples everywhere, of course. But, I mean, do you see yourself as writing political or current events poems? Or is it that something just sort of sidles into the side of the poem? I don't think of myself as a political poet. I certainly am not a party political poet. You know, when I lived in Ireland, I was very conscious of not going down that route. And... I think it's fair to say that the other poets, particularly from Northern Ireland, my friends and colleagues and associates, poets, many of them, alas, gone, some of them still going strong. 
you know, we were always very keen not to be, in a word or two, party political. And funnily enough, when I went to America, I think I became much more politicized by some of the things that were going on there. The other side of it is, of course, that, you know, everything is political. You know, in the broadest sense, everything is political. So it's not unreasonable, I think, to, to make art, that sounds like a rather grand term, but to, to draw, to reflect what's happening in the world in one's poems, you know? And often the specificity of that, you know, is actually one of the things that makes a poem work. Having said that, sometimes poems are lost in their moment. I've just the other day I was reading one of my very early poems, which was written probably in let's say 1969, maybe 1970. It's a poem called Hedgehog. It's a poem that that refers to the hovercraft. It describes a snail as being like a hovercraft. And I realize, of course, that nowadays, you know, however many years later, what is that, 60, 50 or 60 years later, that actually very few people, including myself, actually barely know what a hovercraft is. So my point is being bang up to date, it can have its downside, you know? So sometimes, you know, being very much off a moment is the first thing that will disappear. But, you know, on the other hand, I'm not sure if I ever really subscribed to, and nowadays I subscribe less and less, I think, to the idea that one's writing for a notion of a future, right? The poetry fans coming down the pike who are in 50 years' time are not going to be reading one's poems. Well, you know, in 50 years' time, I think it's fair to say couple of things. First of all, they may not be reading poetry at all. And if they are, they probably won't be reading mine. So I think on balance, I'm sort of quite resigned, as it were, to, to, do, to being true to this particular moment. And if anyone comes down the pike and wants to know what a hovercraft is, they can figure that out. So the, the downside of being bang up to date is real. You have a, this idea of capturing the whole of life and, you know, putting as much in as you can. You've got a line in, in one of your poems here. You say, it's the artist's job to collect detritus and guide it back towards Earth's atmosphere. Is that you speaking in proper persona there? You know, I've, you know, detritus, that's a poem that uses, draws on the imagery of the garbage that's floating about in space, of which there is apparently rather a lot I mean, it's almost up there with what's floating around in the Pacific Ocean and the other oceans in the world. You know, we've already made our our little mark on what's floating around in space. So detritus, I suppose for many poets, the bits and bobs of life, what might be construed in some intellections as garbage, detritus, the things we shrug off, we've thrown away. I mean, they're actually often, for better or worse, usually for worse, the indicators of who we are, you know, and who we have been insofar as we can reconstruct our own past or indeed the past of humankind. And uh, there's an image in uh, one of my poems in this book where I talk about something I came upon in Thessaloniki in the historical museum there, an item in the museum for which <laughs> we don't quite know 
the purpose of this particular object. And I find that absolutely fascinating. You know, here's a little construct in the world. We don't really know what it was for because that technology has been superseded or lost. And by the way, it might have been a technology that far out surpasses some of our own. I mean, I'm fascinated by that little factoid about the Romans and the fact that they had developed ways of making cement for keys or jetties or piers or whatever you call them, you know, where they had figured out the chemistry of this particular combination of bits and bobs of lime and types of materials that they used, which the more it was exposed to salt water, the stronger it became. And I think that's fascinating. I mean, do we know how to do that? I think we don't actually. So it's one of the reasons why I'm very skeptical about the notion of progress, for example, in anything, including poetry writing. Well, the progress of poetry question, you know, some people say poetry is a dwindling market. I mean, you, you, you were just saying, you know, in the future, I don't know if people will be reading poetry. It's become pushed to one side where maybe two, three, four hundred years ago, it was absolutely central to public life. And they say it's been replaced by popular song. Do you subscribe to that? Because I think you're very interested as even this book comes through in pop lyrics, in music. You know, you've written some yourself. Yeah, I don't know if they've been replaced, but I do think they belong to the the same category. And my own view is that I think actually poetry will be read for as long as we meet and try to make sense of things, for as long as we celebrate births, for as long as we celebrate weddings, marriages, uh, for as long as we are looking for something to say about the recently dead. You know, we recognize that it's an art form that does indeed meet us at least halfway at times of great emotional charge and depth in our lives. I mean, one wishes that we all reached for it a bit more readily at times other than births, marriages and deaths, as it were. Part of the reason why we don't, I think, is that in many cases, I say this as a teacher, in many cases, I think it's been, we have been educated out of it or away from it. Uh, we have been told that poetry is so difficult that uh, an ordinary person wouldn't be able to read it, right? That you need help to read it. And, you know, there are many very well-educated people who read probably read a book a day or at least a week or maybe a month who would never dream of reading a poem because they've had some bad association with it along the way. It's really unfortunate. And I think it's hard to know. Um, there's a large re-education project that needs to be embarked on. I, I don't think it's too late to do that any more than it's too late to remind ourselves not to put more shash up in space or you know I this morning just a half an hour ago I was wondering about a plastic bag and what I should do with it should I put it in the garbage and I thought no no don't do that actually please don't do that it's not too late to educate ourselves in a, in a number of ways in which poetry for example might actually have more impact on our day-to-day -day lives than it might at the moment why do you think people are sort of, as it were, frightened of poetry and frightened of difficulty. I mean, there seems to be... We're quite comfortable with song lyrics whose meanings are not immediately apparent. 
or which which are elusive or summon a feeling or emotion without being easily parsed into prose. I mean, maybe you disagree with me, but I think a lot of people read a book of poetry and if they can't immediately understand it, they think, right, I can't get this. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, first of all, they tend to go into a book with the preconception that they won't understand it. Now, let's be clear here. It's sometimes poetry, including some of my own, is a little difficult to get into. But this is true, I think, of almost every art form. You know, one needs to be educated in looking at a painting, for example. I'm not sure if I'm quite educated in doing that. The way one educates oneself is to put oneself in front of as many paintings as possible. Um, We are all pretty well educated in the business of watching a movie and the grammar of film and what, you know, okay, so that must have been, okay, so the new James Bond movie, whatever. Oh, it begins with, oh, so that was a flashback. Because we're so good at watching movies, we realized that was a flashback. So, oh, okay, well, that was a flashback. The first people who watched movies would have had no idea that it was a flashback. Um, the idea of synchronicity is not one that comes naturally to us, for example. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, needed to be something that we were instructed to understand. So we've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of research. We've educated ourselves in, in ways... The big problem, honestly, I think with poetry is that for many of us, we have been told that poetry never means what it says. Whatever you think it's saying, it actually means something else. You know, it's really about something else. And I think that's quite unfortunate because (laughs) most of the time it actually says what it means and means what it says. And it would be great if the contingent that, you know, insists that everything is encoded, that that one has to break the code for every poem, you know, I just wish they'd stop talking for a while, actually, and just let people at the poems. Now, you mentioned paintings. There's a lovely sequence. I think they're called band poems, aren't they? Which is a sort of poems about paintings, but they're several different versions of classical scenes with a poem for each one. So there's the Susanna and the Elders and there's the Tribulations or Temptation of St. Anthony. and things. How did that come about? How did that sort of sequence suggest itself? I mean, they're, they're bawdy, I should say. That's why they're banned. They are quite bawdy. That's right. And that in itself is a fascinating thing to me. I think we live in a world where, I mean, let's face it, the future of the planet is in question. So I, I'm always interested in weighing various ideas, you know, should we be exercised by body? Should we be troubled by it in the light of so much else that might assail us? So there is a body component, which is a component, by the way, of much poetry right through the ages and the history of body verse is one that really has always interested me. And this is my own little contribution to it, perhaps. But how did it begin? Well, first of all, I started off writing one of those poems. And then I wrote another, you know, one thing leads to another. And then I began to realize that there might be, with the subject of St. Anthony, for example, which of course, was a great subject for the painter, because it allowed the painter to represent 
some of the very occasions of sin. I was brought up as a Catholic and, I, and the world was full of occasions of sin for me as a kid. And it was a great opportunity for the painter to represent some of these occasions of sin. So as I continued with it, I realized that there were many, many, many representations of St. Anthony, very many representations of Susanna and the elders. So I just put them together chronologically, as it were, you know, from early on, can't remember when the first one is perhaps 14th century, right up to the 21st century. And I end up with an image from Fernando Botero, who's one of my favorite painters. He did an extraordinary series on Abu Ghraib and the mistreatment of prisoners there by the American forces. You know, there's a case in point. I mean, is that the subject for art? Isn't that sort of fleeting? Isn't that just, you know, last week's news headline? Well, yes and no. It, unfortunately, um, the subject of Guantanamo, for example, not even to speak of Abu Ghraib, is one that continues to be a, a mar on the face of the US, you know? It's a moral blot on the landscape. And, uh, you know, who's going to say that? Somebody has to say it. We say it as private individuals, as private citizens. And, you know, poets are also private citizens. And to that extent, to the extent that we are thinking about the world and what might be wrong with it and what might be fixed about it, we're entitled to say that, just like the next guy, as it were, we have no more authority than the next guy. We don't. But we have that opportunity to point to things that are problematical. Well, Zordon's maps can really show, isn't it? Can I ask again, with the music of your verse and the music in here, when you wrote song lyrics, did you find that formally a different job than writing poetry. I mean, you said they're, they're family relations, but do they have different properties, as you say? Yes, they are related in that they both use words, of course, <laughs> but they use words in slightly different ways. Again, most contemporary poets, for example, do not use rhyme, and it's almost unheard of for a song lyric not to use rhyme. It can be done, but it's very, very rare. So that in itself is, is something that changes the game, as it were. Now, the thing about the song lyric, of course, it also is that when you have one verse, you pretty much, not always, but you pretty much have to replicate it in the next verse. The rhythm of the words, you know, whether using a two-syllable or a single-syllable word at the end of a line, that's all something to be considered. And in a strange way, my own view is that it's actually more difficult to write a song lyric than it is a poem. There are many more pressures coming into play than there are with most poems. So uh, the other thing is that with the poem, and I've said this a few times, I'll say it again, uh, I'm sure others have said it too, the poem brings its own music with it. And indeed it brings its own score with it in my opinion, it teaches you how to perform it, right? If you listen to it, it will actually tell you what to do, how it wants to be heard, if you truly listen to it. I mean, there are those who sort of put a kind of single style on reading poetry, which I find really very strange, so that all their poems sound, sound the same. 
that that I find very weird. With the song lyric, of course, there's always something missing. And that what's missing is the music. So to write song lyrics from a standing start is quite difficult, I think. At least I find it quite difficult for a number of reasons, one of which I've outlined. But the other is that as poets, we tend to want to be perfect. We want to make sure that everything is just so. We may fail, of course, but that's our impulse, is to be perfect, right? <laughs> in the case of the song lyric, particularly if one writes the words first, as I often do, one is figuring in an imperfection. You know, one has to allow for the fact that something else is going to come in and, and really make this what it might, the phrase I use is, what it might most be in the world. Now, you did recently, as well as publishing this, you've just collaborated with Paul McCartney on his collected lyrics. Can I ask what your experience of that was? I mean, did you find that you were coming at his work from slightly different angles? The angle at which I came at it, and in this particular case, was very much looking at the lyrics, and that's the title of the book. It's not the songs, the lyrics. Looking at the lyrics as literary texts, literary in the broadest sense. Of course, it's, uh, it's part of the history of literature in, in the way that, you know, Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for literature. Literature that includes not only what is written down, but the oral tradition, the vast tract of most traditions, including the tradition of poetry or literature in English. Um, so that was what uh, we were trying to do. So the book is made up of the texts of 154 of his songs with commentaries on them, which I elicited from him over a period of five years in a series of conversations, you know, where we sat for three, usually three hours at a time and talked about half a dozen or eight songs. Did he come to you or did you come to him with that? Uh, it was an arranged marriage. It was arranged by the editor of the book, Bob Weil, the American editor of it. So he had done a book with Paul McCartney a few years ago, a book of his poems, per se, and he wanted to do another book. He was the person who really wanted to do this book. And one way or another, I found myself involved in it. And I'm very happily so, I can tell you, because it was it was a lot of fun. And it was, yeah, I mean, it was a great... A great adventure. We had a great time. And so have we. Paul Muldoon, thank you very much indeed for your time. Howdy Scalp is out now. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. listening to the spectators books podcast i very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you